So, um, not technically evidences, but we're going to kind of go, I think the, the natural point after talking about why we have confidence in the Bible is, is kind of like a what then? What, what then? We have this Bible that we believe in and God and all that. And um, the reason, this is actually the reason I did uh, this class is to get to this point. Um, and if you, if you remember, we talked about you know, building things in a correct order. We go from, uh, a lot of times people want to prove the Bible first and, and then tell everybody what, what to do. So we, we jump straight from, well, you should believe the Bible because of all this archaeology stuff into, okay, now do this because the Bible says this. Um, and what we did is we built a foundation of believing in God and then understanding that Christ had to be who Christ was, and then let's get to the Bible and, and let's build up a, a foundation to get to this point where we now don't have an excuse, as, as Paul says in Romans. You're without excuse. Uh, we understand what the, what the demands of the Bible are. Uh, we still have another obstacle, however, and that comes into, um, into play here which is how we understand the Bible. Okay, I've proven the Bible. Now, what about how we go about interpreting it? So we're going to do not an extensive class. Um, hermeneutics for me was a, uh, I can't remember if it was one term or two terms. Uh, we're not going to do a full year or even a semester class. Uh, but I, I want to give some basic concepts. And before we even begin in hermeneutics, um, we'll, we'll come to what that word means uh, a little bit later. But before we come to the concept of Bible interpretation, uh, we want to come to uh, just some uh, the mindset of interpretation. Before, before we even get to the... I'm, I'm one of those people that, uh, you know, like I'll, I, I think this morning I was looking at how to make louvered doors on... Uh, uh, on on YouTube and uh, you know, talking and Tyson like, just get to the stuff and tell me how to do it and shut up. I don't want to hear about this and that. Just tell me how to do it. I want to know what thing to do, what how to cut, and just show me and be quiet. I don't need a 17-minute video of something that you can probably show me in five minutes, right? And and I, uh, that's a lot of times our approach to. Uh, to the Bible and, or, or anything like that. Just don't give me the background. Just tell me. And I would have people that would say, uh, would ask me a question. I was at a rehab center in, in Ukraine. And someone asked me, because we got talking about baptism. Well, you think I need to be baptized to be saved? And I said, well, let's talk about what the Bible, what, do you, what does the Bible say about it? Just tell me what you think. No, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Because it's not really important what I think. It's important what the Bible says. And people just want, just cut it short and don't want to chew their food. Uh, so, uh, so we have to talk, we have to do the, the extra part of the video here. Uh, and yes? I was going to say, to kind of go along with your, uh, uh, um, the story that you were saying about like, the woodworking. Yeah. Like, it's, it's important to know why you do things. Because if you're like, 
And it's a little off, it'll be fine. You know, there's right. nuances to know, like, no, this is why you need to do it this way. It's really right. important. It seems little, but it's actually really, really important. Right. And it's definitely very, as much the same as scripture is. Because you can interpret something, you know, five different ways. Sure. Especially if you don't have the background. But the right. background is really what makes it, like, no, this is really important. Right. That you look at it in a specific way. Because there are so many different ways to do it. Right. Yes, and, and that's, that's when... Like what you're saying about that, that, that material does end up, most of it ends up actually being important. That's why you get those pictures on Pinterest or wherever. It's like, this is what it was supposed to look like, and here's what I did, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk about the mindset of interpretation. And I'm not sure how much of this material we'll get through even today. But this is really, to me, one of the most important things. I think if, if we got this right without telling you all the mechanics of Bible interpretation, because it's actually not really much of a top secret. You know, it's not like the secret recipe, you know, the, the Coca-Cola recipe here uh, of how to interpret the Bible. The, the mindset of it is probably 90% of it, um, and, and it's one of the things that, that people skip over. So what I want to do is talk about uh, the development of our social philosophies um, probably going back a couple of hundred years. I'm not going to detail uh, every decade or anything like that, but just, just a, a brief overview. So um, how many of you know what the Enlightenment period is? What's the Enlightenment period? Uh, I'm talking about more of the time of scientific discovery coming out of the dark ages where people were exploring more ideas and not considering the black magic. Okay, right. So, so we talked about... We, where we really finished our last class was talking about some of these inventions that really Christianity had a lot to do with <clears throat> as far as the motivations for them. Uh, we talked about the printing press and, and various things that shaped the world and, and, and colleges, which were actually Bible colleges and all these universities. It, it's this, this explosion of information. And the premise of, uh, uh, of the Enlightenment was several things. First of all, there was analysis and fact-finding, and, and we wanted to know about the universe, and we wanted to know about science, and we wanted to understand things that are reality. So there was an idea of you. Anybody know what that says? You know this well. What's that? Anybody know Latin? I don't know Latin. Very good. All right. Um, that is the, the idea. That's Rene Descartes. He was a, a very... Um, Christian, to use the phrase loosely, but philosopher. And, and that, was, that was the idea. I think, therefore, I am. That was really the, the, the premise of, um, of the Enlightenment. It was based on facts and fact-finding. Uh, however, uh, and that was 1600s, 1500s, 17, up to the late 1700s. And then we get kind of towards the end of the seven, mid to late 1700s. And there's this, you know, people always want to put a date on things, and there's no date because we're, we're always in flux. We're always just kind of a person has an idea, and then three people agree with that idea. And then, and then pretty soon everybody's idea has changed. And that's what's happening. And we get into the French Revolution, the era of this, and, and, and there's this desire to, to put away religion. And that's what happens next is what we call modernism. Modernism is the next big thing. Um, and so in the late 1700s through the, the 1900s, there's this, there's this 
transition uh, to modernism. And um, people wanted to get away from absolute truth. Uh, they wanted, you know, they, they still accepted some of the premises because that's what we do. We don't, we don't throw away everything immediately. We kind of transition to something new. Uh, so, so we didn't want absolute truth. We, we wanted, as people, as humans, to kind of be free to do our own thing, but we still were captive, because that's the way people were raised by their parents. To, there's this, still this kind of, sort of, truth. Right? Uh, and that's the way art was, actually. Uh, so... Uh, that's Pablo Picasso, right? This, and and, and uh, you see a person kind of thinking, hmm, what is, what is, uh, what is this about? And that, that, that's kind of the way we, we talk about impressionism, right? And, and that was in the art, but because that was in society. That, that re- was just a reflection of people. So, so, they, so they looked at things, and there was, kind of, there was some, some hidden meaning in there, sort of, but it was very impressionistic. Uh, and, 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 and that's... What, what, is, what is this guy trying to say? We have to try to figure out. It's not quite clear. And that was art, that was literature, and that was philosophy. Uh, and so people wanted to get away from, uh, from absolutes. There's still a concept of truth, but it's not so absolute. Um, so it's like this distorted reality. Uh, and we're going to go back through this and, and, and see how this affects religion. Um, so there was still a kind of analytical approach to art and literature and science and all that, but not quite so much. as Not perfectly like there's this absolute truth. Uh, people wanted it to be more subjective. Um, so, so there were subjective morality. Uh, is where this starts to get introduced at. Well, we then, what comes after modernism? Once, once you hit modern, I mean, what do you do? Um, like, hmm. Modern. <laughs> All right. Like, we, we, we run out of names. <laughs> it's like, 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 I heard one guy say, you know, I, when they first dis- discovered vitamins, I think they, they thought there were going to be a lot more of them than there were, because they're like B5, B6, B12, K. Like, okay. <laughs> um, so, um, so we come to postmodernism because what are you going to call it? So we're we're now postmodern, and what happens in postmodernism is in the in the 1900s there's these two guys uh, William Wimsett and Monroe Beardsley. Monroe Beardsley was the older guy, and um, I think William Wimsett is still alive. He's he's an older guy, uh, but but in the late 30s, 40s, 50s, Beardsley and then. And then uh, they were at a university together, and I don't even know which one, and I don't really care. Um, ah, I have it written down. Yale, I do know. Uh, they, they were actually not, they were professors of art and, and aesthetics, whatever that is, and, and then some philosophy thrown in there. And they developed an idea called intentional fallacy. Do you know or can you guess what the intentional fallacy is? Okay. You might as well. That's that's pretty good. No. Uh, so the intentional fallacy is that when you look at art, you are incorrect for trying to figure out what the artist was trying to portray. Really, what's important is what you get out of it, 
Right? That's really what's important. What do you take away from it? And you can already see where this is going. This is just art. They're, this is just an art and literature philosophy. They, they weren't trying to change the world or do anything like that. But they were, this was just how they interpreted art. Well, of course, people pick up things and they run a mile with it. And, and it started getting applied to everything else. So, so, um, so they probably didn't really have any um, bad or you know, nefarious ideas. But they just thought, you know, this is a piece of art. Someone painted it. Take what it, from what you want. Um, so while, um, while Picasso had obviously intended something that nobody knew um, and were trying to figure it out, they, this younger generation grows up with this idea and they become the baby boomers. These are the, the people that, that adopt this as a philosophy of life. Uh, postmodernism. The younger generation sees modernism as hypocritical. It's like, wait a minute, you want it to be subjective and objective at the same time, and you can't have that. That's that's wrong. Modernism is is the worst of them all. Modernism says, well, there's a truth in there somewhere, but we, it could be whatever you want. It's sort of almost like, let's let's think about it. And like, no, there's either absolute truth or there's not absolute truth. And of course, this generation chose to believe in not absolute truth. So so they said whatever you want. Uh, so it was applied to more than just art, um, and it avoids all objectivity. But, but, uh, so, so for example, that's art. That's, that's postmodern art, and you can see, eh, whatever. Do you get something from that? You get something? I get something. Whatever. And that's postmodern art. There's obviously no concepts there whatsoever. No intention. There's nothing. There's just random things and that's art. No one looks at that and goes, I wonder what he was trying to say to me. No one. Let's just... Oh, you did? What is he trying to say to you? I don't know what he's trying to say. Okay. <laughs> he's trying to say these pharmaceuticals were really good. Kind of <laughs> right? So, so, so you see the progression. You see the progression uh, in, in culture. And this is, becomes applied to, however, more than just art. Um, we think of things, that, and you can hear postmodernism in a lot of things that we say. Well, the Constitution is just a living, breathing document. Have you heard that one before? It's a living. We should. We, it is not intentional fallacy. Who cares what the founding fathers intended? It's what we take out of it 200 years later. So I don't like this part of it. Right. So, 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 let's let's. It's all about me. It's all about now. It's what I want. And the parts that I don't like, I'll discard. I don't care about intent. It's not about trying to figure out what they were intending. That is a complete aside. And you can see where we're where we're headed. Now, before we get to where we're headed, we want to talk about the flaws of postmodernism. Uh, so postmodernism says something like, uh, well, <clears throat> you have no right to tell me what to do. You have no right to tell me how to think. What is the flaw? There's an intrinsic flaw in that statement. What is the intrinsic flaw? There's no standard. Okay. If I say 
You have no right to tell me something. I have made a statement of absolute truth. You have no right. Who are you to tell me I have no right to tell you what to do? Oh. I feel like I do. <laughs> right? It, it, it's, all, it's all subjective. So I feel like telling you, and you have no right to tell me that I can't tell you what to do. So, so, so this is obviously... It, 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 it dies its own death. It, it proves its own error. Um, so so that, that's the first flaw with it. Uh, if there is no external absolutes, why do we have so much emotion about things in life? I mean, you know, people, postmodern people get really angry about things. Why? You think one, I think another. Right? Tolerance. Let's just tolerate everything. Well, we have a problem with tolerance. We have a problem with other people being subjective. It's okay when it comes to me being subjective about the things I want to do or not want to do. But when other people have and make different choices, all of a sudden we get, we get a, a, a little um, anxious about that. So, so that's the first flaw. The second is that there is an intellectual void. Um, without getting too far down this rabbit hole, the fact is that postmodernism adds nothing of substance because there's no basis in fact. So I develop a theory. My point is not to figure out whether that theory is correct or not. My, my job is now to make the arguments that I'm right and to search for the facts that support my side because it's all subjective, it's all based on me. So I'm not interested in intention or truth or facts. So if the facts come back and, and disagree with my theory, now I've got to change the facts. So I've got to falsify the model, I've got to change the data, I've got to input different data, and I've got to redo information until the right answer comes out. And, and that's evident at every level of our society and government. That's what happens now because that's the way people think on both sides of the aisle. We're interested in being proven correct. We're not interested in being correct. And there's a big difference between those two. And that's postmodernism. Uh, and so, so when you have that idea, it's very difficult to make actual discovery an actual advancement. And I'm not saying that there's nobody that, that has that, but, but our actual material advancement has slowed down dramatically. I know we've got iPhones and all that stuff. Right? But what, what I'm talking about is material changes uh, have slowed down where, where, where things could have... Um, I'll, I'll give you... One um, one of the things being pushed right now is, uh, or has been for some years, has been um, stem cell research. Well, stem cell research has been slowed down dramatically by the fact that people are, are, are still focused, and, and there's a significant part of our culture that is still focused on embryonic stem cell research, which it does almost nothing. Adult stem cell research is where all the value is, but because there's this cultural thing that wants to push or a significant part of culture that wants to push this one thing, it slowed down our advancements in that area. 
so, uh, and, and just because there's that blind spot, because it's not about learning and saying, this happens. Just like we talked about, um, you know, Francis already, and, and, and various people like that proving things and having to have it proved 200 years later because there was a, a portion of people that didn't want to accept it. Uh, and so it slowed down in those atheistic parts of society, things were slowed down. So, uh, and it is practically, by that I mean the practical application of it is inferior. Okay? Um, in other words, if there is no intrinsic value to anything, then there's no purpose to life. If there is no intent, what do we, every human being asks one question at some point in life. And what is that? Why? And the answer from society says, you're a mistake. You're an accident. There was primordial ooze and lightning hit. And we're here. There is no intent. That is an intentional fallacy. You are an accident. Random things and mutations through through millions of years have produced you. There is no intent. You see, all throughout our culture, this intentional fallacy idea uh, is pervasive. Um, and so, well, there's no value to your life. There's no intrinsic value. There's no purpose to life. There's no meaning. You're not here to do anything. And so you can see how that would be kind of depressing. Okay? Well, look at the amount of addiction in our societies today. Look at the amount of what is referred to as mental illness, which is, for the most part, actually not mental illness. Uh, the minority of people who are ascribed with mental illness actually have a genuine medical mental illness. There's plenty of emotional problems. And most of that comes from external things, not in internal problems with the brain. There's no intrinsic value to myself. And so people who are devalued will suffer. The practical application of postmodernism is destructive at every level. A guy by the name of Thomas Huxley, he was called uh, Charles Darwin's bulldog. He was, uh, he was the, the guy that would argue, he, 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 anything that Charles Darwin said, but he was, it was like the Bible to him. And he was a, uh, an extremely aggressive guy. He would just debate everything. And, and, and what's interesting is, I mean, an intelligent, hyperly intelligent person, and his family tree is hyperly intelligent people, right? His great-grandson was Aldous Huxley, again, another intelligent person. But to look at the life of Aldous Huxley, you see the evidence of, of this philosophy and this idea. Aldous Huxley tried everything, spiritualism, drugs, everything. He experimented with everything because he had no basis in anything. Right? Um, and so... so he dabbled in mystical and Eastern religions and just because there was nothing of substance, there was nothing. So, so you see the practical application um, of this. So 
what I want to go back through kind of with the with some of the time we have left, and I'm, again, I'm not sure we're going to get through all this, but I want to look at how this affects uh, Bible interpretation. Uh, well, the, if we're not, you know, a uh, enlightenment people trying to figure out absolutely what God wants, we want to be enlightenment people. That's what God wants. God wants us to take this book and go, what does this mean? What was God trying to say to me? That's really where we want to be. But I want to notice, because we have phrases that we use, and I've probably used them, and you've probably used them, or heard them and not batted an eyelash, at some of these modernist and postmodernist thought in theology. Uh, so uh, I want to look at when people aren't enlightenment Interpreters, they are either modernist or postmodernist. Uh, let's let's look at postmodernist first of all. Obviously, the author's intent is completely immaterial. I don't care what he's trying to say. And that's extreme, right? But you've heard that phrase. What does this mean to me? So, what does this mean to me? It doesn't mean anything to you. It means what it means. That's what it means to you. It means what it means. See, there's the difference. Well, it's completely subjective. What does this mean to me? I don't care what it meant. But what can I take from it? It's like a painting of art. I, I, I'll just get and enjoy what I want from it. And if it's, if it's not, you know, we'll say things like, well, that was their culture. And we dismiss completely a statement in the Bible. Ah, doesn't apply to me. That was them. Subjective. Completely subjective. And we hear that all the time in, in discussions of the Bible. Ah, and we can just dismiss with a wave thousands of years of intent of God trying to communicate something to people. Ah, their culture. God had an intent. Paul had an intent. The Holy Spirit had an intent. And it is our job to figure out uh, what that was. And so, just like we see the practical application of things, um, it explains aberrant behavior. Postmodernism in Christians explains aberrant behavior. What is aberrant behavior? Okay. It's why people can come in and sit down and listen to the Bible and go out and do exactly the opposite. They can come down, sit, they can be at home and read the Bible and walk out and shack up with each other with no conscience. Why? This doesn't, doesn't affect me. They can walk out and get a divorce. No problem, no discussion, no conscience. They can do anything they want because I don't really like that part of the Bible. It doesn't apply to me. Intentional fallacy. Uh, <clears throat> most people don't settle there. We kind of have a little bit of a conscience still. And so we settle in post or in modernist. Most of us settle in modernist there because that... 
gives us a feeling that we're still trying to search for the intent. It justifies that feeling. I mean, <laughs> why I'm here in this pew is to, to be a Christian and, and these things. And so I have this feeling that I should be taking something out of this picture. He, like, like he was trying to say something. But I don't really want to go all the way and say absolutely, objectively. Right? We're in that little that hypocrisy. Uh, and so the Impressionist view of morality um, <clears throat> or, uh, is, is, is seen here. Right? The modernist was Impressionistic. He is, well, there's kind of an impression of morality. So, so we want some kind of morality. We want to feel like we're, we're better, a little bit at least. I, well, I, I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? This is... This is it's still subjective, but it kind of feels objective. Um, so you will hear phrases like this. Well, I believe in thought inspiration. Have you ever heard of that? Who knows what thought inspiration is? No? Well, yes, but no. It's still hypocritical. It's the idea, we'll, we'll talk about the inerrancy of the scriptures. Um, the inerrancy of the scriptures is that they are always right. See, but, but a lot of people can't accept that. So they'll say, well, God inspired the thought and they wrote it down. So there will likely be human error in the writing down of it. Have you, has anyone heard that before? Okay. You will hear it a lot. That's modernist theology. It's like, yeah, it's inspired, but it's still I get to do whatever I want with it, is what it amounts to, like you said. It's still subjective. When it comes down to it, I still get to discard what I want, but I get to appease my conscience by pretending that I think it means something. You see, the hypocrisy of it. It wants one, but it wants the other. It wants the freedom from obligation, but it wants to justify the reason I'm here in these pews. Uh, so, so the modernist uh, says things like, well, the in- inerrancy of the word. That, that there are contradictions probably you know, in the Gospels, and we went through some of those. Uh, how, how they're, no, that's not really true. The, oh, well, I think there might be some contradictions, but you know, the, the, the basic idea. It doesn't really change the basic idea. No. If God inspired it, then it's inspired. And we're going to look at that. And I don't think we probably have time to go through all the scriptures here. Uh, we might get through a little bit. Um, a, one more thing about um, the modernist is that... Um, by the way, culture is enjoyed, the, the argument of culture is enjoyed by the modernist and postmodernist alike. I did forget to mention that. Because the modernist thinks that, well, I'm sort of interpreting, right? I'm sort of interpreting. I'm, I'm, I'm using uh, hermeneutics. And so, well, that, that was their culture. And you can see that in their culture they had this thing, and, and so it doesn't really apply to us today. So, so there's, there's still that subjectivism. But there's one more thing is the endorsement of symbolism. Uh, the or or um, they are very quick to endorse a uh, 
figurative interpretation. Well, that was just symbolic. That, that wasn't meant to be literal. Um, that was, you know, uh, and, and, and so they can do, well, see, the flood wasn't really a, an event that happened or, or a worldwide event. That's, that's figurative language. Right? And, and so you just start going through all the events and anytime anybody has uh, a difficulty believing something, well, th that was really figurative. Um, well, well, Paul said to do this. But th that was really figurative. Um, and, and that's why we can have, we have people challenge the church structure uh, church leadership roles. Uh, let's let's have elders and deacons. Oh, well, uh, you know, um, I think these qualifications were largely symbolic, um, and, and and it's just anything that's inconvenient. We, well, that was figurative. He wasn't really speaking literally, um, and you see how you can just dismiss anything. So culture and symbolism or or figurative language is is the magic. It's the magic wand that you wave at anything that's inconvenient. Uh, and so you see, again, that, that's, that's modernists' idea. And this is culture. And we've been raised in these cultures. Uh, so uh, one of the things that we'll do as we go through, um, you know, Bible interpretations, looking for when we should um, and shouldn't use those, because there is figurative language, right? There is culture that needs to be applied. And, and some of those things are true in a sense, but being quick to do it and understanding, and a lot of this is simply honesty, is, is, well, are you doing that because you just want to get away with something or because something's inconvenient to you? You know, at, at the bottom of all this, we have to have an honest approach to the Bible. So I'm going to wrap this up a little bit early, make up for all the weeks I went over, um, because I'm going to get into next week, we're going to, uh, we're going to get into some scripture um, in terms of what God particularly thinks of modernism and postmodernism uh, from the Bible. He's not a big fan, uh, as you will. Um, I've, I've, I've said before, you know, the, the, you, you might have heard some of the, the buzzwords, and buzzwords change every, um, you know, every so often when, when we're tired of one, you know, we'll call it something else and rebrand it as something else, but it's really a lot of the same ideas. Postmodernism and modernism really aren't that modern. They go back thousands and thousands of years. Um, we just keep on rebranding it and calling it uh, something else. God, God is not impressed. And, and so one of the, the new phrases is um, um, binary. You heard binary. Um, well, that's that's binary. Like like ooh, you're a you're a two. You're, you're God is and Jesus Christ is the most binary person you've ever met. I mean, he is black or white. Is my way or the highway? Uh, there is no other way unto the Father except by me. That is a binary statement. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yes, no. Black, white. Jesus is not a very nuanced person. Is another buzzword for you. Right? He doesn't get into nuance. This is the way it is. Uh, read the statements of Jesus. Just read them. Don't, don't try to interpret all of them. Just read them and, and notice how absolute the things Jesus says are. I think about the book of Judges. I always think that that inspired before the Mosaic of the law was 
but it wasn't. Right. They already had it. They had come yeah. out. They yeah. out the wilderness, Moses, Joshua, and it says over and over, everyone did as he saw fit. In their exactly. own eyes. Right, that's why I say it's thousands of years old as a philosophy. And just read the book of Judges, how badly that happened. Yep. Over yeah. And over and over. Yep. Yeah, I, I, you would think that, you know, but it's not even to there. I mean, they get a king and they do the same thing for hundreds of years. It's over and over. And it's, it's, a, it's a human problem. It's not, a, it's not even a Jew. We look back and go, oh, those Jews, they're. It is. It's a human problem. It's there's no geographical location or time that culture that that does that. We all do it, and we all have that tendency to to drift off of that straight path. So, all right, you are dismissed. <laughs>